Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. There's a rich guy, he's wealthy, he's got children, he's got he's well-liked in the community, yet uh, the British are threatening New Jersey, so he'll cross the border and go over and support uh, the Continental Army in New Jersey. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Jeff Dacus discussing the life of John Cadwallader, and he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode of Dispatches is sponsored by Simon & Schuster, publisher of Liberty is Sweet, The Hidden History of the American Revolution by Woody Holton, available now wherever books are sold. Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest is Journal of the American Revolution contributor Jeff Dacus, and he'll be telling the story of an interesting man, John Cadwallader, who refused promotion to general not once, but twice. Anytime that we have a chance to analyze the ambitions of a person, whether it be in the American Revolution or the American Civil War, any time of conflict, you often get a, a real window or an insight into the way they think. Are they in this game to climb the ladder to get to the highest rank possible? Or do they genuinely care about the cause? When you study some officers in the British Army and the Patriot Army, I have to admit, there are times when you can be disappointed in people. They're very clearly in it for themselves. But as Jeff Dacus shows in his new article, that wasn't the case with John Cadwallader. And it's important that we tell his story. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Jeff Dacus. Jeff Dacus, welcome back. Good to be back. I enjoy it. Thank you for the invitation. Tell us about your background. Uh, I was a school teacher for 35 years. Uh, uh, also served in the Marine Corps. Uh, I enjoy uh, history. I have uh, my degrees in college were all history. I have three postgraduate degrees in history. Uh, it's been a lifelong study of mine. And uh, I enjoyed it when the Journal of the American Revolution came out, and I was able to write about uh, one of my favorite topics, the revolution, and also about uh, George Washington, uh, the indispensable man. And I write other things, uh, Marine Corps history. Uh, My only book was about Marine Corps fighter pilots in World War II, but uh, the American Revolution's always had a place in my heart. What first drew your interest into this topic? I've always been interested in the leaders of the American Revolution and what a varied and different group they were. They were basically amateurs, although many had previous experience in the French and Indian War. But uh, you've got a bunch of uh, inexperienced or at least inexperienced at, at high levels of command, and they're taking over an army that is equally inexperienced, poorly formed, poorly equipped, poorly uh, paid, 
and yet they're going to take on the British Army, which is a very professional army and has uh, lots of uh, combat experience, has lots of leaders who have lengthy uh, experience in battle. So it's a kind of uh, ironic that this army that's led by these amateurs is going to defeat the British. And so I enjoyed looking at uh, the leaders that, that led the army during the war. Talk about Cadwallader's early life. Well, he's an interesting character by himself. He's, uh, he was born in Ireland uh, to a modest family, middle-class family, but uh, his father was a doctor. And so when they came to America and set up here, uh, they were into the middle class, but gradually worked their way up. And um, because of his background, being educated, uh, John Cadwallader then was able to become a successful merchant in uh, Pennsylvania, and he earned a great deal of money in his uh, trades. And by doing so, he had one of the nicest homes and also uh, was somewhat of a furniture uh, aficionado, if you could say it. He he enjoyed collecting fine furniture. And so he uh, was well known throughout the colonies for his uh, wealth as well as his furniture. And after the war and after uh, he dies, his furniture is going to be uh, sold at auction for a great deal of money. Uh, and he's going to leave a legacy in a way <laughs> of his furniture passing down. He, he was married three times. Uh, he had two sons that uh, fought in the revolution, were military men in the revolution. And uh, his legacy then was uh, completely uh, for the revolution, he worked as on the committee of safety, his local committee of safety prior to the war. And he was part of a militia unit that was formed before the war, uh, the Philadelphia Associators, which were the uh, derisively or complimentary uh, term, the Silk Stockings uh, Regiment, um, because of most of the men in the regiment prior to the war were of the upper uh, class and uh, the elite of the Pennsylvania colony. In fact, most of them will end up as some commissioned rank when the actual war begins. So prior to the war, he's uh, very well known already, and he's more than willing to uh, step forward in uh, the last lines of the uh, declaration where they uh, pledge their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor He's one of those guys that steps up to pledge all three. How did he become involved in the war? Well, he jumps in right away. And uh, as soon as the, the war begins, the uh, Silk Stockings, so-called regiment, uh, puts themselves forth and uh, offers their services to the Army. And they serve in any uh, actions that take place around uh, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, uh, uh, southern New York. Uh, he offers his services and uh, proves himself to be a very competent officer in some of the early actions, especially um, during the Trenton campaign, where he takes command of uh, the local uh, Pennsylvania militia. And when Washington crosses the Delaware on uh, Christmas, uh, Cadwallader also attempts to cross 
the uh, Delaware the same night. He's uh, supposed to work in conjunction with uh, Washington in the attack on Trenton, but unfortunately, ice prevents him from getting all of his troops across on uh, Christmas, so he's unable to support Washington in the way that Washington wanted him to. But then he sends a message the next day and tells Washington, I'm going across the river again. I'm going to get all my men across the river. And not only does he have militia, but he's also got sailors and Marines from the uh, Pennsylvania and Continental Navy. So he's got a sizable force. And they cross the river and go into New Jersey. And Washington, is uh, that's one of the things that prompts him to recross the river uh, and attack Princeton later is the urgings of Cadwallader saying, I'm going over and I'll meet you over there. And it, it kind of uh, helps out with Washington's campaign then at Princeton. Cadwallader uh, shines at the Battle of Princeton, or yes, at the Battle of Princeton, and he uh, is kind of put to the forefront. And Washington gets to see him up close and says, this guy is really somebody that, that we need. And, and it prompts Washington to recommend him to be a general in the Continental Army. Could you talk about his relationship with General George Washington? Well, I think he was very close to Washington. Uh, both there have been, uh, there's no confirmation of it, but it's possible that Washington and Cadwallader met before the revolution during uh, Washington's time. He was very familiar with many of the uh, more wealthy people of Philadelphia, like uh, the Shippens and uh, the Tillmans of Maryland, who were originally in Penn, in uh, Philadelphia. So Washington may have had business dealings with him before the war, so they're familiar with each other. And then once uh, Washington sees him in action, they actually, during the Battle of Princeton, the two of them ride side by side in trying to uh, get the troops that have uh, fallen apart and are retreating from the British. They try to reorganize and regroup them so that very close personal uh, relationship started at that battle. And from then on, whenever Washington needed help and he was in the area of uh, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, uh, Southern New York, uh, Cadwallader was always more than willing to take troops and to assist Washington and at the Battle of Monmouth, he's actually a, a volunteer on Washington's staff. So the two of them operate in conjunction uh, throughout the war. Washington uh, thinks highly of him. Uh, after the uh, uh, Trenton-Princeton campaign, he recommends uh, Cadwallader as uh, both a uh, position of general, which he, the title of my article about him turning it down twice, being a continental general, the first time after he turns it down, Washington recommends him to go to uh, Maryland and work with the Maryland militia in defending uh, Maryland and setting up defenses on the eastern shore of Maryland. So Washington uh, has a close relationship and uh, admires Cadwallader very much. He'll fight a duel in Washington's name. Uh, tell us about that. Yes. Uh, uh, Thomas Conway, the famous uh, Irishman who fought in the French army and then came to America in order to uh, advance himself to become a major general here so he could become a major general back in France. 
the the truest mercenary of the mercenary words uh, did slander or at least talk poorly of Washington. Uh, uh, there's several quotes where he says that Washington uh, has no uh, something about table manners. He's got great table manners, but as a general is is very lacking. So these types of comments came to Cadwallader's uh, ears and being a close friend of Washington and having seen Washington in action and knows what kind of man he is, he's deeply affronted by these, uh, you know, slanders and challenges Conway to a duel. And Conway uh, accepts, they go to the dueling ground and Cadwallader uh, shoots and strikes Conway in the face. And uh, there's no confirmation that he actually said it, but that Cadwallader uh, along the lines of this said something like, I've shot him in his face and uh, stopped his lying mouth. So he was very, uh, made sure, he made sure that Washington's honor was upheld. When does he refuse to become a general and why does he do that? Cadwallader was uh, uh, a militia general. He became a brigadier general in the Philadelphia or in the Pennsylvania militia in 1777. He was very tied to his home, and he did not want to commit to a long-term uh, separation from family from his home. He was more than willing to turn out with the militia and fight locally around uh, uh, eastern Pennsylvania, New Jersey. Uh, but he did not want to make a commitment uh, that would take him away from his local area. So whenever the Continental Army is operating near his home base, he's more than willing to assist the Army and to be part of it and bring the militia out to support Washington or as it Monmouth served as, as part of Washington's staff. But uh, he's just tied to his home province, so to speak. And that's a, that's a problem that, that several officers, uh, Philip de Haas, uh, when he is uh, promoted uh, to Brigadier General, he refuses the commission uh, along the same lines. And he remains at his home and uh, uh, serves when the uh, uh, Tories and Indians begin raiding into uh, East or Western Pennsylvania, he's more than willing to turn out with the militia and even uh, support the continental forces that come in, but doesn't leave his area because he's more of a business. He wants to protect his business while Cadwallader is more uh, his home. His family is in uh, Eastern Pennsylvania and wants to stay there. There were uh, Seth Pomeroy. Uh, he's another general that because of his uh, poor health, he doesn't want to commit to leaving his home province. And so he refuses to become a general in the Continental Army and yet serves in his local area. And oddly enough, he dies when he agrees to leave his own area and help organize militia in New Jersey. So uh, several Continental, Joseph Reed, another uh, one who has appointed a brigadier general but never we're, we're not sure if he ever accepted the commission or whatever. Washington wanted him to, to lead the cavalry uh, in the Continental Army, and uh, Reed uh, didn't want to do that, wanted to stay in Philadelphia where 
Uh, he will eventually become president of Pennsylvania, and uh, he's more than willing to come out and uh, support and serve, you know, in local areas, helps Washington in the Monmouth campaign. But Joseph Reed's another one. He's tied to his home in Philadelphia and uh, wants to uh, stay locally. So Cadwallader is not unusual in that. What happens to Cadwallader after the war? After the war, he's, he's a successful businessman. As I said, his uh, uh, furniture, his house, he, he's, he's very well. He, he becomes a governor. He serves, oddly enough, he serves in uh, the legislature of Maryland. He briefly moves to Maryland and serves in the legislature there. Uh, unfortunately, he, like uh, Nathaniel Green and uh, Tench Tillman, uh, he dies uh, shortly after the war. He dies in 1786. And so his, uh, we don't know what he could have done. He was only 46 years old, so he's still very young. What he could have done for the new country, for his, his state of Pennsylvania or the state of Maryland, wherever he was living, we, we don't know what he could have done. He's another one of the young guys. Uh, John Lawrence is another one that, that died too soon, and we never get to see how they would have contributed to a post-war United States. Jeff, what do you think his legacy should be? Well, I think his legacy should be that uh, we should step up when times are tough and uh, we can still, uh, you know, support our local and we can we can uh, have our home and, and not worry about that. But we we can step out of our comfort zone to support our country, to uh, participate in what is needed at the time. He was needed at the time. He was an excellent officer. He was an excellent leader and he was needed. And he, even though he had limitations that he didn't really want to serve long-term, he did step up whenever the campaign uh, called for extra uh, support or extra uh, men. He was more than willing to turn out his militia and uh, serve alongside Washington and, uh, kind of tells us that there are times that we have to step out of our comfort zone. It doesn't mean you're going to give up everything you've got, like uh, they pledged in the declaration, but it is something that uh, kind of says to us, here's a rich guy. He's wealthy. He's got children. He's got these wealth liked in the community yet uh, the British are threatening New Jersey. So he'll cross the border and go over and support, Uh, the Continental Army in New Jersey. Jeff Dacus, thanks again. You're very welcome. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.